Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're even more grateful that you're a part of our community. Before we get to today's teaching and our new series that we'll be living in in the month of June, Jason's going to give us a couple updates on the life of our community. The first is a couple things that are happening in the month of June, some events that we're excited about, and also an exciting update on the Tribune Project. So let me turn it over to Jason Miller. Hey, good morning. Welcome to South Bend City Church. How are we doing? Hey, my name is uh, Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're very honored that you're here, uh, and it's a beautiful day to be together. It's the first Sunday of June. We just wrapped up a very long series uh, talking about the Apostles' Creed, and today we're going to venture into some new territory. I'm very, very eager for it. Uh, we're going to get there a little bit later, though. Uh, right now, I just want to let you know about some other things happening in our life together, because really our heart is that you would be a part of that life if you'd like to be, and we want to make sure that you know how you could navigate your way into that. Uh, first of all, a couple of events uh, that are built upon our commitment to being a safe place for LGBTQ people uh, here at South Bend City Church. So one of those is uh, for all of us who want to show up well alongside LGBTQ people. We want to learn from their experience and learn how to love them well, how to uh, walk with them, how to understand uh, the things that they're carrying so that we can love them better. So this is a creating a safe space for LGBTQ plus people panel night. For all of us who want to learn to walk alongside uh, these beloved members of our family, our friends right here in our church, this is coming up on Tuesday, June 13th at 7 p.m. here at Studebaker 112. So this is a place to bring uh, questions that you might have. Maybe you just want to understand more about the experience of LGBTQ persons. Maybe you haven't heard a lot of those stories, and it's one thing to hear about them from a distance. It's another thing to hear about them from the members of our family right here, right? Uh, maybe upon hearing those stories, you'll gain some fresh insight on how to love well as you walk with them. Uh, we've, we're going to have a panel there of some LGBTQ members of our church alongside um, also like a couple of family members who have their own story to share about what it's been like to love a family member well who identifies in that space. Uh, 7 p.m., uh, we are asking you to register for two reasons. One, that'll give us a chance to know how many people to expect. The other is when you register for that, you'll have a chance to submit questions in advance, and that'll help us and the panel prepare, because the second half of that night will be all about addressing the questions that you might bring. Uh, one other note about the kinds of questions you might have. Um, if you're wrestling with like, what Scripture says about sexuality or gender identity, or you're, you're thinking, um, wondering how you would work out theology along those lines, this night isn't really going to address those questions. It's not that those questions aren't important. It's just that we can't do everything all the time. Uh, this space is more for relational questions, personal questions, questions of story, uh, questions about how to advocate. Theological and biblical questions, we've tried hard to address those through a couple of extended teachings and some resource lists. You can find links to both the teachings and the resource lists. If you just go to the FAQ page on our website, uh, that's your best place to go for those kinds of questions. Uh, then, uh, we're offering a table specifically for our LGBTQ members of South City Church. Uh, that's coming up on Tuesday, June 27th at 6 p.m. Uh, again, sign up for this as well, if you would. Uh, this is uh, a table like all of our table groups where we'll share a meal and conversation and some storytelling, uh, specifically, though, for those who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, I'm going to be there, and the team felt like it was helpful to have the pastor to show up as a sign of support and encouragement. Uh, but otherwise, this space is specifically dedicated for the LGBTQ members of our church. Uh, sign up for this as well. Uh, you can find all the detail on this, including uh, signing up will mean that we let you know where it's happening. It's not happening here. Location to be determined. And just go to the What's Happening part of our website, and you'll find a link with information about both of these events and a chance to sign up. Sound good? Cool. Uh, awesome. Let's talk about Father's Day coming up right around the corner. Um, as we did with Mother's Day, 
We also on Father's Day want to honor that day and all of its beauty and all of its complexity. And this year for both Mother's Day and Father's Day, we are asking you to help us write uh, the reading or prayer that will honor that moment for our community. So again, if you go to what's happening under southlandcitychurch.com, you'll see a link where you can uh, submit some of your own language um, about everything that you are celebrating this Father's Day and or everything that you are wrestling with or mourning or lamenting this Father's Day. And then we'll do what we did with Mother's Day. We'll gather up your language and turn that into a reading in our liturgy on Father's Day. Uh, so just go to stopandcitychurch.com. We'd love for you to help us out with that. Uh, you don't have much time. In the next week, if you could get those in for us, that'll help us out. Now, all that being said, I wanna share an update with you that's very exciting. We first shared this update Thursday night at our consecration gathering at the Tribune. But if you weren't there, I wanna make sure that you get to hear it today. Uh, first of all, just a brief bit of context. Uh, as you probably are aware, for a while now, we've been working on a project to transform the printing press building of the South Bend Tribune downtown into a future home for our own community and a place where common good can happen with community partners all week long. Uh, this has been a big, big project for our church. A whole bunch of us have um, committed and given a lot of money to this project, a lot of prayer, a lot of volunteer hours. And the good news is quite a while ago, we realized that between the mortgage that we're taking out for the building and the giving that's happened and the giving that's committed, we have enough money for phase one of the project. Amazing. The, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, we can keep celebrating that. The trick that we were wrestling with was a timeline thing because those two numbers that I talked about, the second number, which is given and pledged money, that money comes in over two years and that two-year window ends next year in April. However, the construction renovation on the building only takes like six to seven months. So if we pull the trigger today, we'd be moving in six to seven months from now, which means the contractor understandably would expect to be fully paid by then. <laughs> but we wouldn't have all the money until next April. So we've been working for months uh, with the bank on a secondary financing instrument, uh, a short-term bridge loan to help us just cover the gap between when we would move in and when we would have all the dollars given. And after months, months of work, uh, we got that bridge loan approved, and in the last week and a half, yeah, really, really grateful. So we have authorized all of the renovations for phase one of the project, everything's moving forward, and we hope to be moving in sometime in December if things go as planned. Really excited about that, yeah. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, whether you've given wisdom, or prayers, or volunteer hours, or dollars to the project, it's made a very real difference in securing a future, not just for us, but for all the other good things that are gonna happen there. Um, now, one other note I wanna clarify, uh, you might be saying, wait a minute, December, but Jay, you've told us that our lease ends in June, which is like right now. Yes, that's true. Uh, we are also enormously grateful. Uh, the developer here at Studebaker has been willing to work with us on this. And even though it continues to be the case that there wasn't going to be a long-term future for us here at Studebaker, uh, when we cross over to the end of our lease, which happens like 11 days from now, uh, we'll enter into a new arrangement here. It's a month-to-month -month lease agreement. We won't have total use of this space seven days a week. We'll have fractional use. Thursday nights, the band will be able to rehearse. And on Sunday mornings, we'll be here for our gatherings. Any other use of the building would have to be negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis. But with that reduced use, we also are going to benefit from a dramatically reduced rent. Uh, we're going from $18,000 a month to $5,000 a month to rent this place. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. So we will be here. So keep coming here on Sundays. Don't get lost out there. We will be here on Sundays, uh, presumably until we move into the Tribune. Uh, but we won't be able to use the space during the week nearly as much. 
we will save gobs of money, which will be uh, really helpful for us as we try to be responsible stewards of everything that you give here. Speaking of, my last announcement, if you'd like to give to help things happen around here, just go to southandcitychurch.com slash give. Uh, we are enormously grateful for all the ways that you make things possible, and giving is one way that you can do that. Isn't that all exciting? We're so thankful, like Jason said, for the ways you give, whether it be financially or through volunteering or just general support. We thank you for all of the ways in which you contribute to this community. So today, we start our new series, Idols, Icons, and Tech. Technologies are advancing at a swift rate, bringing with them profound possibilities and alarming liabilities. And so for the next four weeks, we'll explore some big questions, theological frameworks, and practical approaches to our relationship with technology. All right, let's jump in with the rest of our community now for week one of this series. Uh, today, we're starting something new. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Uh, to get into it, uh, I want to uh, observe something that we've looked at before. Uh, it's one of our sort of core texts. It shapes one of our mantras that I'll explain in a bit. Uh, it's interesting when you read the book of Genesis, which is one of the most beautiful, strange, peculiar, quirky texts that we have in Scripture. It's interesting that the first chapter of Genesis begins with what most scholars who see the original language would describe as a poem. You might even say a song. Genesis 1, the original story of creation, where we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, it doesn't, it doesn't read like a technical manual. It doesn't read like the kind of thing that's just meant to communicate like journalistic information like you would read in a newspaper. It has a kind of give and take, a kind of flow, a kind of rhythm. It even has a refrain. You might even call it the chorus. Like the thing that like the, the author keeps coming back to, the sort of center of gravity in the text as it describes God first like hovering over the chaotic waters of the abyss and then slowly sifting and sorting and from all that sifting and sorting little by little we end up with the good and beautiful world that we see today. And good's the important word in that chorus because over and over again God does a little bit of creating, then God steps back and then this is the line from Genesis. God saw that it was good. You almost like can sense a, like, a joyful delight in this, as if like, God does a little bit of work as a, a craftsperson, like getting God's hands on these raw materials and making something beautiful, and then steps back and delights in it and says, that's really good. It's as if like, when God set glaciers to carve out the Great Lakes and then to let them be filled with water, then he steps back and sees those big blue expanses and says, that's, like, that's good. I like that, right? It's as if God first saw a sunset the way that like, as those of us who find ourselves on this planet find ourselves sort of being drawn backward into the darkness of the night as the globe rotates away from the sun and then the sun's angles of light hit the atmosphere in just the right way so that it turns orange and banks off the clouds, he saw it and then he said, I think that's really good, right? Like over and over again, this refrain, it's good, it's good. It's a kind of celebration, a kind of delight. And then after this chorus being repeated five times, in Genesis 1, creating and then it was good, creating and it was good, creating and it was good. Then we read this. God saw all that he had made and it was, what's the word? Very good. Yeah, don't miss that. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now this begs a simple question. What is it that takes this from good to very good? Like, what is it that gives the whole creation an upgrade? Like, to keep the musical metaphor going, it's almost like you can feel the key change in the song, right? Like, like Zach just did that to you all a little earlier in the set, right? And when the key chain hits, like, you know that's when the feelings come, right? That's like when the power hits. And there's kind of a key change here in the song. We go from good, and good is good, but good's not very good. But very good is very good. And the whole thing gets an upgrade from good to very good. And this begs the question, like, why? 
What is it that does that? And I'll show you what happens between good and very good. Again, this is a text a lot of us have looked at before, but this is going to lay a foundation for some new ideas over the next four weeks. This comes from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, pay real close attention to these words, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, um, by the way, rule and subdue, those are complicated words. They might be better translated as steward. Uh, care for, tend to, all of this. But that's the thing that takes creation from good to very good. So God sets loose in creation these beautiful raw materials of land and sky and sea and animals. And then God has this idea, I'm going to set something particular loose in this world. It's humanity. And humanity is going to bear God's image in the world. Humanity is going to do the same kinds of things that God does in the world. So if God has been getting God's hands on the raw materials of creation and sifting and sorting and making it beautiful, if God has been doing this work that leads to more and more diverse flourishing life, which is the ark in Genesis 1. There's more and more diverse flourishing life. Then God says, I want humans to have the same kind of task in the world, to get their hands to it, to to make something beautiful out of it. That's what takes it from good to very good. The introduction of image bearers. This is our mantra, everyone an icon. Every human being, uh, it's illustrated up there on on the top right. Every human being, a bearer of the divine image in the world. And this is what takes things from good to very good. Uh, There's a theologian and thinker named Andy Crouch who who kind of observes it like this. He says, grapes are good. Wine is very good. And you go from grapes to wine when human hands set about the craft of doing something with the raw materials, right? How about this? A maple tree, like very, or good. Maple tree is good. It's beautiful, right? But a, a handmade acoustic guitar? In the hands of an artist, that's very good, right? There's another level of beauty that's realized. As if God joyfully and willfully left some things unfinished for us to set our hands to, to take our own hands to all these raw materials and make something beautiful. Now, it's not just that the calling there is to get our hands on the raw materials and make something beautiful. We're called to fill the earth and do that work. This is a kind of sending mission. Go out into the whole thing. Go out into all the untended places. Go out into all the spaces that have, been, have yet to have human hand brought to them and make them beautiful. Tend to them in the best sense. This isn't talking about raping and pillaging the earth. This is talking about loving and tending and stewarding the earth. But as we do so, going out into it and making beautiful things. The calling there is to go and make something of the world. That's Genesis's first vision. That's the Bible's first idea of what it means to be human, of, of what it means to like, take hold of our destiny as human beings the way that God intended it, that we are meant to go and make something of the world. Now, do me a favor and consider the vulnerability baked into that calling. 
To go means to leave behind whatever vestiges of safety we build for ourselves, to go out into places that don't yet feel safe, right? And to set our hands to the task of making something is inherently an act of vulnerability. Have you ever made anything and has it ever confronted you with your vulnerability? Parents? <laughs> to raise kids is an act of profound vulnerability. Amen? I haven't even done it. It just looks really hard. Uh, <laughs> to set your hands to any creative task is an act of vulnerability. And so in the calling to go and make something of the world, there's a vulnerability baked in. I was thinking about this as we were standing at the Tribune Thursday night to consecrate that space. Um, it feels good to have arrived, and it feels good to have made things. It is vulnerable to set out on the adventure and to begin to make. I was thinking about the vulnerability of this community deciding that our next step is to take on this like, monumental challenge of raising money for a building and leaving behind a place here at Studebaker that's been home to us. Now, in this case, our hand was forced in the fact that like, we didn't choose to leave Studebaker as much as the arrangement changed here, but that doesn't change the fact that to set out away from what is already established to set out away from what is already secure, to make new things rather than resting on the old things that have already been made, this is incredibly vulnerable. But this is right there at the heart of the calling. And I was thinking standing there at Trib about all the vulnerable moments in this journey of us kind of poking our head around the city wondering where else we would need to be. It's so easy to imagine our life here and to forget that there was a day when this life here at Studebaker itself was just a dream. Right now it feels inevitable. Like, how, else, how could this room be anything but what it is now? That's, that's the effect of having made things together, right? Now they feel inevitable, but at first it was vulnerable to imagine this place transformed. And then it was vulnerable to look around and imagine that printing press building transformed. It was vulnerable to think about picking up our whole life and moving it there because we have some patterns here that work for us. And we're going to have to build some new ones when we go there, right? It was vulnerable to have to ask for money. That was hard for me, y'all. Like, to sit in homes and stand in front of you and say, we're going to have to do this together, and it takes sacrifice. These are acts of vulnerability, but they are right there in the heart of our calling as humans. Go, leave behind the safe, tamed places that you have already built. Go out into the unbuilt places and make something new and beautiful. Now, all of that's just a setup for the sermon. We haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. That's just uh, some background, some observation. But it's really important background for another text that's going to become a foundational text for us in the next four weeks. Um, Sean Palmer taught this text from another number of angles last summer. And I'm going to come back to it with one particular angle and work with it today and through the month of June. The text from, comes from Genesis 11. This is just uh, 11 chapters later in that first book in the Bible where we read this peculiar story. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. You might have heard it before. Now, a couple of basic observations for all of you biblical studies types who are curious about this. One predominant theory about why this story got told to begin with is that these Israelite people who give us Genesis, the book of Genesis, had had some run-ins with an empire called Babel. And Babel represented a lot of suffering for these Israelite people, a lot of subjugation for these Israelite people, a lot of evil that they went through. And here we have a story about what seems to actually be describing the building project of the Babylonians in Mesopotamia, but they put a spin on it, which is how you, how you kind of throw shade, right? So at one level, there's some shade being thrown here at the empire called Babel or the city called Babylon. Uh, but there's a lot more going on here. And really, you could ask yourself, like, what's so wrong with this project? Now, sometimes this gets preached simply as, like, God doesn't like their aspirations to build up high. God likes it when humans stay low. I don't know if that's what's going on here. The idea that, like, God doesn't like our big building project, there's something wrong with that intrinsically. I don't know if that's what's going on here. A number of commentators, especially a number of Jewish commentators who've worked really hard on this text for, you know, 3,000 years, have some thoughts on this. And they point out that in Genesis 1, humanity's entire commissioning, our entire calling was go and fill the earth. Go everywhere around this planet. Embrace the inherent vulnerability of being sent out into untamed places. Take on that risk and make something of the world. Right? All that language is about making something of the world. Tame the earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. Really, these are words to say, get your hands on all the raw materials of that world and make something good and beautiful of the world in the same way that God had been making something good and beautiful of the world. But in Genesis 11, they, they decide, like, we're not going to go and make something of the world. They say they're going to stay and make something of ourselves. Did you, their reasoning with themselves was, let's do this so that we can make a name for ourselves and so that we will not be scattered. This is humanity losing the plot on their original calling. Uh, one Jewish commentator, uh, a man uh, known in particular for his expertise in the book of Genesis, Nahum Sarna, says it like this. Humanity had fulfilled part of the divine blessing, be fertile and increase. Humanity tends to be quick to get to that part of the calling. But had balked, apparently, at filling the earth. The building project was thus a deliberate attempt to thwart the expressed will of God, something that would interfere with the unfolding of the divine scheme of history. It is in this light that the sin of the builders must be viewed and the vexation of God be regarded. I just really wanted to use the word vexation today. God is vexed by the fact that he gave us a calling, he gave us an assignment. He set human beings on an adventure to go out into the world and make something good and beautiful of the world. And here in Genesis 11, they abandoned the risk and vulnerability of that calling and they said that we're gonna stay here and make something of ourselves. You could say that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11, we are feeling uh, the choice between image bearing and idolatry. 
Image bearing where we live in our true calling, which has within it some inherent vulnerability and risk. And idolatry, which takes us away from our calling. Idolatry tends to promise safety and security, but it actually robs you of your calling. Idolatry will promise to make you large, but it actually diminishes you. Idolatry will promise to make you safe, but it actually just sort of robs you of the very thing that you are here for. And you could say that in Genesis 11, we have an exercise in idolatry that robs the people of their calling from Genesis 1 to go and make something of the world. Now, that's just prelude. That's not even the sermon. That's just backdrop for what I really want to say and where we're going to go for the next uh, several weeks. In the same way that I asked in Genesis 1, what is it that takes things from good to very good? In Genesis 11, there's a little clue about one of the things that takes the people from calling to idolatry. One of the things that robs them of their true purpose in the world. It's, it's a little thing that you might notice um, if you're paying close attention. Uh, let me go back to one of the uh, lines in the text from Genesis 11. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, I don't know if you know this, but what you're reading about there is the advent of a brand new technology. For uh, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapiens had built things with rock, right? It's like they look around and they're like, oh, look, there's building material right here. We just have to stack it, right? And then someone comes along, especially, it seems, in the Mesopotamian Valley, where they have less access to that kind of rock to build things, and they develop a technology where they can take things like dirt, mud, clay, and they can bake it into bricks, and they can build other kinds of things. And not only can you do this even if you don't have rocks, but you can build bigger, taller, more dramatically. You can, you can bake these things down into a kind of load-bearing capacity. This is a, a technology that evolves during this time. And then because of the shape of these, these bricks, you can build taller and create things that are more stable. It's possible that Genesis 11, way, way, way back in the first book of the Bible, is a story about the possibility of technology robbing us of our calling as bearers of the image of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought bearing the image of God meant that we get our hands on the raw materials and we make things. And isn't that exactly what technology is? Yes. This is the whole conundrum. You could say that technology is this space and has been for thousands of years where our best image-bearing capacities, the most beautiful things that God has given us to be human, like these energies, these capacities, these intellects, these skills, these innovations, our best image-bearing capacities are commingled with our worst impulses. And this calls for some discernment. This calls for some vigilance. This calls for some thoughtfulness. And that's what we're going to do for the next three, four weeks. We need to do some reasoning together about technology and the world that we are living in right now. Um, everything from social media to genetics to AI is begging questions about what's the best version of us and what's the worst version of us and how are these technologies expressing the best of us and expressing the worst in us and how are these technologies empowering the best in us and how are these technologies empowering the worst in us and we ought to be people who think really clearly about these kinds of things, right? Take social media just as one example. We could tell a long, rich, and truthful story 
about technology as an expression of and an opportunity to bear the image of God. Right? I mean, the ingenuity that's made social media possible, everything from the devices, the computer chips, and then the, the kind of the, the software dreaming, and then the worldwide web of connection that makes all this possible, it is a staggering feat of human capacity to create social media, right? And through social media, we've seen some really, really beautiful things. I mean, how many of you would say, you can think of at least one person with whom you enjoy a deep and rich connection and you wouldn't had it not been for social media? Most of us, I suspect, right? Amazing. It's often the case, in particular, that those relationships through social media span larger spectrums of identity, experience, and geography. I mean, it's expanded our world. It's drawn us out into the world toward one another. That's really, like, fantastic, really beautiful, right? I think, too, about how um, social media has been really instrumental in uh, fueling, driving, energizing really important movements for social change. You think about, for example, um, movements uh, in uh, like North Africa with what's called the Arab Spring. A lot of that was made possible by social media. People who were like finding one another and organizing together to fight for a better future for themselves and their country because of social media. I think about here in the United States how I think much of the um, current um, outcry over the kinds of injustices that people of color face in the United States has been fueled and made possible by greater visibility of those experiences. Because it's one thing, like for somebody like me who doesn't live in a body that's marked by that color, it's one thing for somebody like me to perhaps theoretically hear about the experiences of people of color. It's another thing to see them play out against their bodies in real time on video. These are important things and these are good things that have come about from social media, right? But you all know that's not the only thing that's come about with social media. Right? Um, it's also the case that uh, because the algorithm only cares about your attention, let me say that again, the algorithm only cares about your attention. It doesn't care about your well-being. It doesn't care about the truth. The algorithm only cares about your attention because your attention is the only thing they can monetize. We'll say more about that in a bit. But because of that, like, what's going to hold your attention? Well, it, it, the algorithm kind of figures out on its own that the things that hold your attention tend to drag you like further and further into more extreme positions, more extreme sort of stimuli that just drive you farther and farther in a certain direction. The same like social media world that in some, some cases can actually draw us toward one another across lines of difference. Also, we have mountains of data demonstrating the fact that it's having the opposite effect. It's just feeding you worse and worse versions of biases, prejudices, uh, incomplete data sets, and harmful worldviews. Social media is just one example of the way that technology can be a place where our absolute best, as bearers of the image of God, here to make something beautiful of the world, can coexist alongside our absolute worst, where um, the, the energies of an idol are playing themselves out in us, promising to make us large, but in fact making us small, promising to deliver us, but in fact enslaving us. I won't even ask you today to pull out your phone and look at your screen time record for the last week. But I did it. And it screams a certain kind of enslavement. The hours sort of unintentionally spent staring at a screen, instead of doing the making, the creating, the showing up, the work together, the kind of life of love that we're called to, just sort of endlessly scrolling and lurking. I mean, these devices, these 
forms of media that have promised to liberate us in many other ways have certainly enslaved us, and we have to talk about that. Now, one more note about what's happening in the story of Babel in Genesis 11, and it also uh, lays groundwork for where we're headed. There's a tradition that developed after the biblical text, and this tradition is espoused both in Jewish thinking and Christian thinking. And the tradition says that there was a certain king who was driving this project. You've heard his name, though you might not have known it was connected to the Tower of Babel. His name is Nimrod. And Josephus is an ancient historian who tells the story that was being told about Nimrod's role in the Tower of Babel. Let me show you this. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, that's Noah of the ark fame, right? A bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through God's means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into a tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. Now, I don't know how you read that, and I'm going to say something that it's, going to, it's an overstatement. I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to back off from it, okay? I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to back off from it. There is a way of reading that that maps onto the titans of tech who have enriched themselves beyond all imaginable measure, convincing you that the devices they put in our hands and the forms of media that live on those devices were for our benefit, for our good, not realizing that you and I are being exploited. I mean, you know, anytime anybody gives you something for free, you're not the customer, you're the product. You know that, right? I mean, that's quite literally true with social media. The reason that they give you free Instagram and free Facebook and free Twitter is because you're not the customer. You're the product. You know that, right? Their customer is the advertisers who pay them billions of dollars to hold your attention, to keep your eyes. And there seems to be very little regard for the good or the bad that it's causing in us and for us. I mean, these are public companies who live and die by a mandate to increase profits every, every quarter, and they're really, really good at their technology. Now, I'm going to back away from that. Uh, I'm not actually trying to say that everybody who leads in tech is a villain. I think, again, like all of us, you have image-bearing and idolatry co-mingled, right? But that's why it calls for thoughtfulness, for discernment for nuance, for people to like, think deeply about these matters together, right? and then to practice ways of awakening and awareness. Uh, there's a sociologist named Felicia Wusong who works specifically in media and tech and is also a person of Christian faith. And she makes this argument as a sociologist. She says one of the problems with all of our discourse around technology is we keep pretending that it's just you and your device. But it's not. We live in a whole social web. It's, it's not just you sort of walking around on dry ground. It's you and me swimming in waters with currents that are flowing. And those currents all around us are moving us in certain directions. And so it takes a real awareness, a real vigilance, a real collective commitment to swim upstream if the current is taking us in a bad direction. And so again, like we need to actually work this out together as a community. 
Um, technology is a place where the heights and the depths of our capacity to bear the image of God and our capacity for idolatry are expressed every day. When it comes to genetics, the medical interventions made possible by the mapping of the human genome are extraordinary, and we have just begun to see what those interventions will do. If you want to hear more about that, listen to a guy named Francis Collins. Francis uh, recently retired as the director of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, before that, though, he led the project to map the human genome, a feat of human capacity to bring our minds and, and skills to bear on the natural world. Also, a man of deep and devout faith, uh, a man who speaks pretty openly about what Jesus means to him. And I recently heard him in conversation on a podcast talking about the, the marvels of the genetic revolution that we are living in and the good that it will do. But of course, to have those keys, the keys that unlock DNA, also raises all sorts of really profound questions about how, how can we and how should we manipulate that information in ways that are good and appropriate, and what are all the wrong ways, the bad ways, the terrifying ways that we might use that? Uh, I've already mentioned with social media, there's the beauty of human solidarity made possible through social media. There's also the mountain of evidence that says that um, the precipitous decline in mental health among young people in particular is directly correlated to the amount of time they're spending on their devices. I mean, we're not talking about a little dip. We're talking, talking about like epidemic level proportions of mental health decline among teenagers. And devices and social media are very, very clearly connected to all of that. Um, we got to wake up and be image bearers. We got to take our, our power and our responsibilities seriously. AI, artificial intelligence. I don't know how y'all are feeling about that right now. Intrigued, excited, terrified, end of the world, who knows, right? Nobody knows. That's, that's actually the point. I don't think anybody knows right now. Uh, on the one hand, um, it seems very clear that these technologies are advancing at a rate that most of us don't understand. Along the way, it appears that they might displace a lot of really important labor and means of pro providing for ourselves. There's lots of like, really complicated questions with AI. Um, there are questions about the use of AI in the military and um, removing even further the actual acts of violence which are perpetrated in war from human agents. I mean, these are really serious questions that are being asked. But also, it wasn't long ago that we sat right here on this stage, right here in this room during Notre Dame's Idea Week, and we heard a really profound argument from Kevin Kelly, one of the founders of Wired Magazine, who also was a tech futurist. And he sat here and he told me, he told a lot of you, he said, remember though, if we are bearers of the image of God, which means that we are here to do what God does, he said, what's more godlike, what's more godly, what's more image-bearing than to make something in our image? I was like, shoot, Kevin, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, he's an optimist by, by default. He, he tends to be pretty pro-tech, but I never thought about that before. He said, like, what could be more faithful to the calling to bear the image of God than to do what God did? which is to make something in our image. And perhaps that's some of what's being worked out here. And maybe there'll be something beautiful and powerful that emerges. But now's the time to think about it. Now's the time to talk about it. Over the next few weeks, I'm gonna to try to offer some really practical handles to think about our relationship with technology. I'm gonna to try to offer some very accessible practices to like, actually like, get in there and like, really work out our relationship with technology. I'm also gonna to try to offer some big questions um, some frameworks, some big ideas, so that as members of the society that is 
collectively shaping these technologies, we might be a little more equipped, a little bit more vigilant, a little more um, ready and able to bring our own convictions to bear on the very nature of the technologies that are shaping us. Um, that's another way of saying it, really, and it goes back to Genesis 11 and Genesis 1, which is um, we need to decide if we want to primarily be shaped by these things or if we want to shape these things. I mean, that's it. Kevin Kelly said it right here. He said the reason you should be involved in technology rather than running away from it is because it's going to happen whether you like it or not. Kevin Kelly said the only question is what version of it will we have? And he said, it's those who get their hands into it and work it out that determine that future. And so uh, ultimately, I'm going to propose some ways of distancing ourselves from these technologies, but I'm also going to propose some ways of getting in there and being a part of the unfolding process of human beings who at our worst are building idols, but at our best are bearing the image of God with the technologies that we create and we use. Um, every time I read scripture, I can't get over the fact that in this big story of humanity in Scripture, that to be human is high stakes. That's one thing I hear over and over again in the text, whether it's Genesis 1 saying, I want human beings to set their hands to this world and make something beautiful, or whether it's our kids' volunteers who right now, who knows what they're facing in that room, but... <laughs> or whether it's Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying... I want you to go out into the world and make disciples. You realize Matthew 28 is a recapitulation of Genesis 1. Go out there and craft something beautiful of this world. Go out there and make something beautiful. To be human is high stakes. God seems to have entrusted us with something extraordinary. And we want to bring to it our bravery, our capacity for vulnerability, our vigilant attempts to avoid idolatry and to keep not only bearing the image, but honoring the image of God in others. And tech will be a way for us to do that. That's where we're headed. Sound good? Cool. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? So may you hear the calling on your life, which is to go and make something beautiful of the world, to get your hands on the raw materials, and with all the vulnerability of an artist, make something good. May we be vigilant about our idols about those stories that promise safety and security, but that rob us of the work that we are here to do. May we be eyes wide open and awake to the world that we live in right now and trust that God will give us what we need to make something good with it together. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.